Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. On today's agenda, we are talking about our favorite books of the fall, and our guests are authors Mary H.K. Choi and Liana Fink. Hi, Ann Friedman. Hi, Aminatu So. <laughs> Are you ready to talk about books today? <laughs> Yo, we love books. Readers are leaders, y'all. Oh my God. Also, our listeners are readers. I really, sometimes I think about how in our last listener survey of all the, the like interests we polled people about, books was just like far, far and away the top interest. And I, I, I just, the feeling, the surge of warmth I felt for this like CYG community when I saw that percentage, I was just like, ugh, our people. It, it makes me so happy. I was hanging out with my friend and her baby recently and like truly a baby, a couple months old. And she, <laughs> she was like laying on her back, the baby, and was just like had a book page open. And I was like, you know what? All my friends are readers. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> that image just slayed me. You're like, and even I- my two-month-old <laughs> friends are readers. <laughs> Ooh, I was so excited to talk to Mary, whose new book, Permanent Record, is out now, anywhere that you buy books. And uh, previously, Mary had written another great um, novel called Emergency Contact. So if you read that, you're definitely going to love Permanent Record. And, um, you know, Mary is just, she is just like one of these supremely interesting, fascinating, thoughtful people. And so to have her be writing books for any age group, I think, is so, it's so perfect to me. I'm like, you could be writing books for toddlers and I would read them. And one of the reasons I think that I respond so much to her writing is that she's someone who just like really thoughtfully engages with young people and with technology and use of technology like what are our feelings about fame in general and what are our feelings about notoriety also she writes about food in a way that i really love and appreciate i'm just like really happy that she writes i cannot wait to listen to this conversation i'm mary hk Choi, and i'm the author of permanent record i'm really excited to talk about your book today because it's such a fresh modern theme that touches on on so many different issues, and we're going to dig into that. But before we do, I really want you for the audience to say the name of your main characters out loud because it, okay. it makes me so happy. So it's Leanna Smart is the pop juggernaut um, who is the love interest, and among many, many things far be it for me to be reductive about her and Pablo Neruda Rind it's a bit of an albatross literarily speaking but um, that is our main character he's mixed Pakistani and Korean and he works in a bodega you mean a high-end deli? Excuse I do. me? A, a Korean-owned 24-hour deli with matcha Kit Kats. This makes me happy for so many reasons can you talk a little bit about where the idea for the book came from? Sure. Like, so much of it is about being a love letter to New York. I briefly lived away from New York, which was my own bad. I tried it, so to speak. Welcome back. Welcome back. (laughs) And so much of what I missed was my bodega. It's this very specific relationship that you cultivate that gives you such a sense of belonging and makes your neighborhood distinctly yours. And, you know, there'd be moments when I was in aforementioned other place where I'd be like, oh, God, do I have to, like, get in my automobile and schlep to a parking construction place and then, like, go to actual Target just for a twofer of Advil that I need for a vague headache? Like, the inconvenience factor was just, just, it dismantled me. But a lot of it, too, is just, like, New York. I love the people here. I love that you know, that there is this kind of like mutual Stockholm syndrome that we're all experiencing in that like New York is so inhospitable to like humans and it's sometimes the unkindest place you can live and try to get on mass transit at. But I love the attitude it engenders. Like I love that 
no New Yorker doesn't have a hot take on absolutely everything. And I even like the way when we smell something suspicious, we immediately go to Twitter (laughs) (laughs) or like the group chat. And, you know, we just really hold each other down. And I think that a lot of it is, you know, so many different communities have a scarcity mentality and they have that sort of barrel of crabs thing. And I'm not saying that New York is immune to that. In fact, it's kind of concentrated in a lot of ways. But in sort of scrabbling for finite resources, we end up lifting each other up in a really big way. And, you know, and I know you appreciate this, but like New Yorkers have so much financial transparency. And I always thought that that was like really important to talk about in fiction for young people, because what else feels more coming of age and more debilitating and more terrifying than like money, especially money in New York. Right. And I mean, and the thing that I really appreciate about this, everybody who is listening to this, who has listened to our book episodes knows that uh, I struggle a lot with fiction because uh, that's my bad, because I don't have an imagination and I'm empty inside. So, (laughs) 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 But, um, But every time that I read fiction, and I'm like, oh, this is how the other half lives. No wonder they're much happier and smarter than me. Like, flex your imagination muscle. Thank God. Well, I mean, flights of fancy are nice because you're like, oh, let me leave here. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> then you're just like Kanye Bear, like in the sky. It's true. But the thing that I really appreciated about your novel, Mary, is that you write so specifically about that time between like high school and the end of college where you are just a ball of confusion and you're trying to figure out who you are and, you know, like, some of it is hormonal, some of it is just, like, time and velocity and all these things, but it's such an intensely confusing time that once you are removed from it, it's really easy to forget. To just be like, oh, like that, you're like, I have put that PTSD in a box and we're just going to bury it and we're going to pretend that it's not happening. But I had such an appreciation for that of, like, this is really fucking hard and also it's hard for um people who are not white in a very specific kind of way that also is like we never talk about that nuance of like we're just we're just all trying to find ourselves here and this shit is hard and so i just really um that was something that was like that was really evocative to me and i was really uh I was really struck by how alive your characters are, like specifically Pablo. I'm like, this is a real, this is a real person. This does not happen all the time with a person who is not white in books. So, well, right. I mean, we all contain multitudes. And I think that a lot of that, you know, specifically if you have any melanin quotient within you, like those. It's it's like a coming of age that happens with all of us, especially as like creative people that I think has to happen twice where you sort of come of age and become like an adult. And by that, you mean it means that like you're kind of struck with this like crippling imposter syndrome because you had so much expectation of what mm, adulthood would feel like. Yeah. And oftentimes you feel you fall so short of that in terms of like how you feel inside. And, you know, the, the whole thing about like my characters being... Um, you know, robust, so to speak, is that I do delve a lot and stay stay inside and analyze a lot of the interiority and what you're actually experiencing when you are, you know, just fraught with this like existential just freak out. Because, you know, in so many ways, especially, you know, with the amount of pressure that goes into college these days where that pressure is applied from such a young age, you're conditioned, you know, it's kind of like eye of the tiger and it's just like get into a name brand school and then, you know, then then you will have arrived. And a lo- I think a lot of people, once they get to school, they're just like, oh shit, like I f- still feel like me. It's kind of like when you're little and you have a birthday and you have all this expectation that you'll feel different by dint of another 24 hours. And you're mm-hmm. like, wait, I still feel the same as I did when I was like yesterday years old big scam big scam huge scam and you know like the the whole thing you know I definitely had to get to a place where as an immigrant and as someone who actually grew up in a colony which is like such a bananas thing to actually think about yeah you grew up in Hong Kong I grew up in Hong Kong as a Korean like going to British school it's really really confusing and I you know, it's not even just the acceptance of self in insofar as like, oh, I realize I'm Korean and like, oh, I accept this and, and I'm becoming more comfortable about being Korean and what that means for my identity. It's kind of like, you know, you get to a place where you have to sort of reclaim what it means to be like a Korean artist and like an East Asian person and a person that is part of like the larger Asian diaspora and what that means. And you know, I'm not saying that like, oh, like, 
until I was this many years old, I thought I was white or aspired to be white. Like that's such a reductive thing thing that's often foisted on us by like the white lens. It's more Uh. just that like there's this moment where in my experience, I was unused to being the protagonist of my own life story. And I think that really does happen to a lot of people who whose parents experience such a different um, upbringing and for whom like English might be their first language, but it isn't of their forebears. And there's always this sort of like schism of like, like code switching, not only like class wise, but also like the way you speak to your parents versus the way that you speak to your friends versus the way you even speak to like um figures of authority in your like friend or school world and so with Pablo like you know as a kid who's also mixed he's having to sort of reckon with what parts of his parents identities he can claim and so there's a lot of things that happen to him like that I think a lot of people can relate to it's like when you are in a position where like say it's like you're at church with your mom or like some sort of like place of worship and it's like majority the the one kind of minority that you are then you're like like pop quiz you know like what's going to happen is someone going to ask me something is someone going to say something in a really offensive way because we're all the same and like that over familiar way and so like Pablo does go to a wedding with his father and like he immediately has this like moment of panic that he doesn't speak or do and like you know he has the same thing in Korean as well and I, I think that that's such a part of a mixed kid experience but it's such a part of like New York experience yeah because, like, we are all such a, like, melange. I mean, I feel like that's putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, I, I want to stay on this, like, theme of family because another thing that I was so struck by is how, um, you know, the family members and the relationship with Pablo's family, those things are all fully formed as well. You know, the the lazy version of this, like, in the movie is you see, like, a friend for two minutes and then there's some sort of, like, plot device. And then the, right. it's the same thing with the parents or the same thing with the brother. And then here is like, no, no, like, this person is, he's a member of his family. And you get to meet his family and you get to understand these really complicated, like, immigrant dynamics that he um, that he is having, and so I just like uh, I really want to hear a little bit more the process behind that of creating of creating that world for him. So in my first novel, Emergency Contact, it was you know I all I knew about the mother daughter relationship is that I wanted it to be a, a little bit like Lorelai Gilmore and Rory Gilmore, or like you know, Adina Monsoon and Safi Monsoon from Absolutely Fabulous, where it's like kind of like this upending of like the normal dynamic of like what you would expect from like an immigrant, especially like East Asian mother and daughter scenario. But for Permanent Record, like I did want to explore a little bit like this notion of a tiger mom, which is such a pat stock character type. But I wanted to sort of peel that away a little bit so it's not just like this incredible pressure and this like white knuckled sort of guilt inducing thing of like you got to get to this kind of school you have to be a doctor or a lawyer which you know the the thing is like that is a dynamic that certainly appears within immigrant communities but like the thing I wanted to also question was like why can't I have this in this book without it being reduced to that because I'm like for like for crying out loud like I live in New York I have a lot of minority friends I have a lot of immigrant friends with immigrant moms like lawyers and doctors that's like literally every immigrant like like it's big with Haitians you know what I mean like it's big with like everyone Nigerians it's like big with everyone and like you know so I wanted to take that and I wanted to sort of peel it back and sort of like explore the dynamic between like a firstborn son and his mother and just like reveal a little bit of like what the actual motivation behind that is, which is what it is for a lot of people, which isn't that like they just don't they don't want to like, you know, have clout about their like expensive, you know, kid. It's that like they want you to be safe. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to explore some of that fear between um, Pablo's mother, Kay, or Kyung Hee, and him and what her expectations are as a doctor. But then also I wanted to sort of like explore a totally different dynamic with his father you know Bilal is like super wavy and he like went to Princeton and he did all the things and like his family kind of they're kind of estranged because he didn't pursue like a a typical um, marriage or vocation and 
I wanted I wanted that to be really really specific, and I wanted to interrogate some of that sort of like masculinity and like without it turning into any sort of like weird patriarchal thing. Like it was really, really important to me if I was going to write a male protagonist that he be very tender, that he be very confused, that he be very anxious, that he not be so like caught up in, you know, masculine foils and what that means. Because like I know so many people in New York and this is very much a love letter to those guys too where like they're all really like evolved. And like I have that experience with a lot of my male friends here, especially if they're artists, especially if they they're really close with their like parents and families and like the women in their lives. And so that was also really important for me to have, not to have this like lapsed Muslim father who was just like this one type of way. Like, you know, Bilal is so, so funny in that he's had like 19 different jobs because he just hasn't found the one that most speaks to him. And he really moves with spirit and he's really into like holding space for his sons. And he's like really into affection and he's effusive and demonstrative. And like, that's another thing about writing fiction that is so beautiful is that you can create these people who not only define archetypes or stereotypes, but are like just the best kind of people that are also deeply flawed. Yeah, I mean, and and just, again, complicated people. Yeah, I love like it. Yeah, like we all are, yeah. We all are, but we're not allowed to be in so many scenarios, right? And so I think that that's, um, I, I really hope that that's something that speaks to so many people, and I know that it will. I mean, that's a part about writing for, like, a younger audience that I do take really, really seriously. Like, I do think that there is a very, very large um, service aspect to the privilege of getting to write for people who are all voracious readers of this like age group. And by that, I'm not sitting here being like, oh, like I'm, I'm, I have delusions about the fact that like all my readers are in college or all my readers are in high school. Like YA is such a huge, huge readership. But I do do school visits. I do visit a lot of like book fairs and things like that that are geared to teens in high schools largely. And it's, I just want to, like, Permanent Record is all about, like, failure. And, you know, I do think that there's so much pressure applied to young people these days to succeed in these, like, very, very large ways. Like, I think that one aspect of social media and, you know, the internet is that, like, you're exposed to so much and it's so beautiful, except that you're also exposed to certain things that you could voyeuristically sort of want and aspire to that are so, so rarefied. Like, you know, I'm not saying that, like, Instagram is just, like, advertising for the 1%, but, like, you you, you are scrolling mindlessly through, you know, very, very rich people's stuff, as well as your friends, and as well as the memes. Mm-hmm. And what that what that does a little bit, I think, is that, like, it, it sort of is this, like, distortion field that skews what you think the expectation is for how success and ambition is defined. And I just wanted to be clear that like you were going to make so many mistakes and you do feel as though you are a little bit, you know, in front of an audience as to your own failures, especially when there's so much pressure to like edit yourself a certain way or carry yourself a certain way or like delete all your like Instagram grid versus your stories to be a certain aesthetic and stuff like that to only have like the most crystallized distilled versions of your perfectest moments. And I just want to keep sort of harping on this notion that like in order to find any like learning, in order to find any success as defined by what what makes you happy, like you're going to make so many mistakes and you're going to fail a lot. And I think that a lot of young people, especially from like just even talking to them, but also like every single poll, it's that like there's such a premium placed on success that I think it actually curbs the willingness to like attempt something. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that a lot of like a lot of us since like time immemorial as it comes to like teenagers and coming of age, like we are trying to figure out what it is that we want to do and what we want to be, but it's just more expensive than ever, I think, emotionally to try something. Life in a lot of ways is surprisingly long when you look at it in terms of like how much iterative learning there is to be done. Right. I think, you know, like what you're saying about social media is so important and is like a message that is so at the core of this book, right? And 
the thing that you're saying about just like having access to rich people stuff. Like I always joke that what I really want people to put in their bios is how much money they have, how much money their parents make. (laughs) And I'm like, and tell me your race. So that way we all know what's going on here. But your book is not a romance book, which I've been like very frustrated hearing people like somebody try to sell it to me as like a romance. And I was like, no, there is a romance at the center of this book, but it is not a romance book. But the thing about like the, the relationship that unfolds in this is that it really Really is one of class warfare where somebody somebody gets to see the other side of how this sausage is made and I, I it was so you write about it in these like very jarring kind of you know terms where you're like okay great you can you can go from this moment where you're just a kid in a bodega to being in a private jet like that is such a New York weirdo experience that can happen to someone but also the whiplash of that is something that if you do not process together or you don't process it out loud, it will eat you up. Like, what does it mean to, like, finally get context for how somebody else has power and how they have money? Right. And that that's the thing about class that's so gnarly. It's like you can be invited into these very, very special places and you can be like, ooh, I'm amongst, like, only a handful of people that have seen this side or whatever. But the whiplash of, like, how transitive properties don't apply when it comes to both fame and money. Oh, like, my gosh. <laughs> you know, like, just because, like, your friend knew this famous person and you happen to be sharing space with that famous person doesn't mean you can then go up to them and it certainly doesn't mean that like because you once hobnobbed or like you know conjugated like a special nighttime verb with a famous person doesn't mean that their fans are then gonna like come out come after you and like give you free shit like you're just a tourist and you don't even have your passport into rich people land just because you've been there once and like it is always darkest after the fireworks and I've also been in situations where like you might be in like the tractor beam of a famous person's attention and then when it sort of leaves you're like oh it's cold (laughs) you know (laughs) what I mean and like but that stuff isn't going to sustain you it's kind of like I, I liken a lot of this love story you know people have accused my books of being like a little bit like oh nothing really happens I was just like "Mm, not wrong it is contemporary and it is kind of a quieter story and I I keep using this analogy but it's like I just I want all my stories to be recognizable to a point where like Mark Ruffalo could be in them where like the the truly the biggest stake or like the denouement begins at the kitchen table you know what I mean where it's like it's just like interiority is important the sort of scale of the stake when it's like you are a certain age like things experienced for the first time feel seismic that's how big they feel it doesn't matter how small it is by the time you're like 55 and you you've experienced the world it's like that 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 level of proportion and scale is something that i really really like to look at but yeah like most of life and i think that anyone who's like tasted any success or even like experienced any like really big setbacks it's like most of life is like that awkward 45 seconds of the movie graduate after (laughs) they get on the bus where they're like we're strangers it's weird now and it's awkward like most of life is that in-between nebulous space this is why it excites me that you write you know like i i hate this term but like ordinary people and ordinary experiences because i think that two things are going on one is that you know, usually, like, uh, people like us only get written about when you do, like, a superhero kind of thing. Oh, like, sure. that's the, like, that's the kind of person that you have to be. It's like, why can't we just be, like, regular people? But I think also just, like, exploding this idea that there is, a, you know, just that you go from this, like, high experience to high experience to high experience, and that's how you arrive somewhere. And it's like, no, life is, like, you know, some hard work and a lot of flukes, you know, a lot of times. Where and it's like, so much waiting. So much waiting and you're, and life just happens in those moments, like mm-hmm. in those moments where you think that nothing is going on. It's like, no, that's the difference between will you be at like a important fancy thing the next day? Like the thing that you did not socially engineer yourself. Right. Will you meet someone that can change your life? And I don't know. Sometimes I think that this is the trap of living in a big city, you know, mm-hmm. is that you think that there's there's some sort of like weird social engineering that you're supposed to be a part of. Well, right. That, is, that cre- is that. And then that's not how it works. Well, and it sort of creates this like weird suspension feeling of like almost making a moral issue out of everything where you're like, how am I like 
trouncing my own upward mobility by deciding (laughs) yes or no to like any number of decisions that you're faced with in a certain day. And like going back to your point about social media too, it's like I love the idea of potentially having like you know, like everything you've earned in your savings ratio and your 401k and like how rich your parents are, how much of that is a trust fund on your bio. But it's also like anything to do with a celebrity and like aspiration so much within like a large city and social media. It's like it's like that whole compare and despair thing where it's like you are mm-hmm. comparing your insides and how you feel on your lowest times to someone's curated outside, this one finite thing of a sheen, a veneer of a hologram that you can never know what they're going through. And it's like, yeah, like I think that that casts such a pal on how you define your life's work and your aspiration and who you want to be and like that distortion is just so so hard to get away from no matter how old you are and I think that a lot of like and I'm not saying that this this book is prescriptive but like I want a lot of like inquiry to start happening the younger you are to sort of fortify yourself a little bit when you're older so that you can like be like oh I do not have to define success by these external mores like I know where my my due north is and I am the only one who can define what makes me happy and I can be the only one to define what it is that I'm going to do. Right, and also just, you know, I think that um, this, like, particularly I got as a, you know, like an insight through Bilal, the, um, the father character, and really thinking about what it means, like, to just submit to time to your life, mm. you know, and instead of worrying about... Um, why am I not like 30 under 30? Why don't I have the job that my parents want for me? Why, you know, like this this moment where you're like 20 something, I'm like, you're literally a child. Nobody cares about your contribution to society or to the world. It's why when you start your first job, they only trust you with photocopies. I was like, you don't know how to do anything. But that's the capitalist but you don't know that. scam though. <laughs> it's like you, you sort of like, you know, brainwash kids into thinking that like optimization is what they want. And then that's how you can sort of squish them and like get as much mm. like marrow out of them until they're just like husks that are entirely replaceable. I mean, that is like, that is the scam. It's the optimization scam. And that happens when you're young. And that's why when you're like, again, in your 20s, you're like, oh no, I only have a TEDx talk. It's not a, it's not a real TED talk. I'll never, at this rate, I'll never get to Davos by the time I'm 29. <laughs> you know what I mean? And these feel like real things that are foisted upon people and like, received by people and like foisted on themselves and it's like that that is really scary to me like how how are you gonna know what you want right and i think that you know the answer the answer to everything is time right it's like you if you survive you were probably going to be fine but you have to survive and you have to surrender in order to survive with grace without completely cannibalizing yourself like you know the thing that's helped me a lot and it's something that I was only able to write, you know, for a long time, I was like, oh, God, like, I feel like such a fraud that I'm writing YA at such a elevated, advanced age. Um, but now I'm thinking about it as like, there's just a lot of insights that I did not have access to at different points in my mm. life where I was a lot more like in my addictions, in my like self-obsessions. And so much of what I've learned in the last few years, especially as I write a creative pursuit that I then expose myself in like revealing to the world and being like, I hope you love this like tender molten core of my like psyche. You know, a lot of what I've just figured out or been instructed by or what's been led to me, I guess, is that like believing that time is on your side and not making yourself feel emotionally and psychologically and spiritually late for deadlines that you are not the one that made in the first place helps you out. Like either you are right on time because the universe is a benevolent conspiracy to see you do well and you're ultimately taken care of or you're just running around to things that you don't even know if you had any agency in deciding that you were late for. And that's a a really beautiful thing about time and just being really gentle and hydrating and trying to sleep and just showing up for yourself and the part that you can do that is in your control like that's all it is and it's that's like a daily thing and you can't super worry about what's down the line that's so beautiful 
Thanks, man. <laughs> um, Permanent Record is out now wherever you buy books. Buy a copy for yourself and for a young person that you know or a person who needs to stay young. And uh, Mary, thank you so much for everything that you do. This Th- is uh, thank you. It was really was the treat of my month to read this book. So Yay. thank you. Thank you. So I talked to Liana Fink, who is a cartoonist and an illustrator. She's been contributing to The New Yorker since 2015. But it's funny. She's sort of like, oh, yeah, like my funny air quotes work goes to The New Yorker. And then my like super real like thoughts about sexism and the um, various joys and indignities of being a woman in the year 2019 goes on my Instagram. So it's sort of like The New Yorker gets like (laughs) this like skim off the top that like is is sort of like maybe safer for that audience and then um if you really kind of want to go deeper into her psyche instagram is the place but she has a new collection um called excuse me cartoons complaints and notes to self that is out now it is largely autobiographical it's organized kind of by different subjects but i really like her her work that feels more observational of just like let me just let me just give you a snapshot of what it feels like to be a woman trying to like have a solo moment in public and be constantly interrupted. Or like, let me give you a snapshot of the kind of like spinning out in my own brain about something that on its face should probably be simple. And I also really love her drawing style, which is not like a classic newspaper cartoon, really stylized clear lines. Like it's kind of squiggly, like all of her human figures are a little bit like like wobbly blob like which I love (laughs) and yeah and in general I really just appreciate it as a vehicle for this um you know like hyper specific to her perspective of the world which sometimes overlaps with things that I have felt or have happened to me and often does not and I appreciate it in both cases but anyway she's lovely and I spoke to her in person in Los Angeles when she was on book tour Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I want to ask you about this idea that occurred to me when I was thinking about your book and thinking about this interview, which is like, is reading your book an experience for me what it was like for some women to read Kathy like 30 years ago and feel really seen? (laughs) I so much wonder. I... I have so much to say about Kathy. I didn't grow up with Kathy. I've come to appreciate it as a grown up. Mm-hmm. I grew up with the times my parents refused to get a newspaper with cartoons in it. Uh-huh. And I think I wouldn't have loved Kathy when I was a pretentious teenager, but I love it now as a, a woman of the people and I really appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah, I guess I just mean, and maybe I should clarify what I mean by that, is like, I assume that there was like some woman who's in the target Kathy demographic who was reading it and just like, yes, Kathy, I feel the same Uh, way about chocolate. And uh, it's more that experience where like, I feel like I'm your target demo. And when I look at it, I'm like, yes, (laughs) that's exactly how I feel about men's emotions and walking down the street. (laughs) Thank you. I do feel that way about a lot of Kathy-like things. I Mm. weirdly feel that way about Bridget Jones's diary Mm. and Nora Ephron. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, so I came in contact with your work first on Instagram, which I think maybe a lot of people do these days. Thank you. What's that like? (laughs) Um, It's nice. I find that the people who like me on Instagram are also people who I would like Mm -hmm. and do like, I think 100% of the time. And that's really unusual. I don't, I still don't really know if I have a New Yorker fan base, but if I do, I think they're not necessarily people I would feel comfortable chatting with. (laughs) I think they're like New Yorker cartoon fans are like kind of like New Yorker cartoon characters and they're fun to watch, but not fun to talk to. Yeah, when I see your work in The New Yorker, it feels like seeing a teacher outside of school or something where I'm like, oh, you're here too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, for someone listening who has never seen your cartoons, how would you describe the like what you're dealing with? They are so I've come to a certain realization, which is that they're I've substituted the funniness in New Yorker cartoons. Oh, we we hope with 
directness. I've found that a single panel cartoon can be direct kind of the same way it's funny. But whereas New Yorker cartoons are a one-two punch with a setup and a punchline, like a Jerry Seinfeld joke, um, what I do on Instagram, which is less funny, is <laughs> just a punch. Um, and they're very autobiographical, and I use them to work out problems that I'm dealing with in my brain, which are usually very circular. But I find that when I draw them, especially if people see what I've drawn, somehow the circle is broken and, and the spiral evolves. Um, so I deal with, I deal a lot with, I have dealt a lot with dating, which has evolved, luckily. Um, Your dating experiences have evolved or yeah. the way you deal with it? <laughs> well, I, the way I've dealt with it has evolved, but also I'm no longer going on first dates because I'm in a relationship. So that's, that's a new canvas to paint, I guess. And I also talk about being very shy and being kind of, uh, there's no more specific word I want to use than weird, slightly weird. And I used to have an eating disorder and I still think about food very in a very concrete way, in a troubleshooting kind of way. So I talk about compulsive eating in there and stuff. And what else? Just, oh, a lot about sexism. I think the whole... <laughs> The whole thing can be defined as little ways that people are unfair to each other and trying to uncover them. Yeah, there's something about like the single pane cartoon in the w in the way you in particular distill like what otherwise might have been a fleeting moment of sexism, I guess is maybe how I would describe it, yeah. um, that I very much appreciate. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's hard for me to let go of little things. So I guess the, all the cartoons are things that one should just let go of that mm -hmm. I have pinned down and then can let go of. <laughs> right. Like after you after you slow down and memorialize it and yeah. say it happened, then you're yeah. like, okay. When I heard you say, and also sexism, I was thinking about this cartoon of yours that I... I really like feel compelled to share it every single day and I don't, but um, the group of women dancing around a man's feelings... <laughs> Is it a group of women? I, women, I had just one women. that was women like... Yeah, please ugh. correct me. No, I don't remember. Tiptoeing. Tiptoe yeah, tiptoeing. Yes. Yeah, that's it. Yes. Yeah. Women tiptoeing around a man's feelings. And there's something about the combo of that and your drawing style that like feels very like ancient cave art to me. And I mean it mm -hmm. in the best way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you know that cave art... Well, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that it was made by women a lot. Oh. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. I, I hope mean, it's true. Who would have taught me that? <laughs> I know men not men right yeah I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the process of what made it into this book and what didn't this book was almost all taken from Instagram although I redrew everything for the book because I hadn't I hadn't archived my work and I never will because it's too it's much more stressful to archive work than to make work but anyway I <laughs> chose the cartoons with the help of my editor, Andy Ward, at Random House. He was very hands-on, and he was very helpful in helping me winnow them down. And he, it was also, I think, his idea or my agent, Meredith Caffel simonoffs idea to put the book into chapters instead of chronological. I was kind of champing for chronological, but I could see how that would make someone weary. Just It would resemble a circular thought where you're like, men, food, anger, men, food, anger, men, food, anger, <laughs> instead of just like men, food, <laughs> anger. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I also think it helped me understand as someone who, like I said, follows, follows your work on the internet where I do maybe get it more chronologically or like get men, food, anger, men, food, anger. Yeah. Like it, it helped me sort of say like, oh, like these are like broad themes you're yeah. exploring. Yeah. And, and I was wondering if we could do an open the book and have you read and describe what what the image is yes, for please. a couple of them. This one is called The Two People Who Get It. And it has a picture of the character who's my avatar, who's actually based on my former dog, not on me. <laughs> she had like long blonde ears. Anyway, so A, you... Um, that's one of the two people who get it. And B, a guy you only know through the internet. Wow. <laughs> Thanks. That's to describe the feeling of really un really vibing with someone who you haven't met yet. And it's so such a beautiful feeling to write about, but it's so dangerous in real life. And it, it 
you can only feel it so many times before you get jaded. Right, and start to be skeptical of it. And then I have one that's called being, quote, single but open, and it has a picture of a fishing line with a hook and then um, the my avatar character dangling off the hook, and she says, now I just wait. <laughs> she's often like, maybe Kathy has this too. Like, she's often kind of placid, placidly contented when she's actually in a very bad situation. Mm-hmm. Um, then I have one that was a rejected New Yorker cartoon, which so it's actually quote funny where it's a a picture of a man very gallantly putting his jacket over a hole while a woman waits and it says a gentleman throwing his jacket over a hole for a lady (laughs) she's gonna fall in so it's not that gallant i it's so funny because like that one yeah i get i get what you mean when you say it's a funny one but i'm also just like dark truths like that that's more what i thought i was just like the dark reality are Um, you pro men opening doors for women or no or people open, people opening doors for people. I yeah, guess. like I'm pro like someone who gets there first opens the door. That's what I'm pro as but, well. But I don't. I'm. I always judge men who seem put off by the fact when right. I get there first and yeah. open it. Yeah, I encounter so few of those men. I wonder maybe mm. I'm just not even looking at them, but they're awful. Yeah, I mean it's a very telling. It's very telling. Yeah. Can I make a shout out to my friend? <laughs> yes, please. Tanir Oxman. She's the one who introduced me to your podcast and turned me into a feminist. Oh my gosh. Wait, tell me more about how you know each other. Okay. She's a comic scholar. She's a feminist comic scholar. And I met her. She organized a conference when I was maybe 24. And, and I met her through the conference. And she was intensely feminist. And I was just like just scrambling to get a date at the point, which kind of precludes feminism in a young person, maybe. And and I I don't know, meeting her hastened the the big change. Oh my gosh. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Um shout out to her. <laughs> <laughs> also just like feminist comic scholar, like yes. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's like of a different she's like of a different era and she belongs in this era. Like she needs to be in this era. We need her. Wow. Yeah. I was just reading, speaking of like other new books that are out, Linda Berry has this like how to journal book. I haven't read it yet, but I adore her. Yeah. yeah. And I also really like her, but the book is really very how to, you mm-hmm. know, there's a lot in there about the way people like me who are not words plus pictures in my journal. I'm like just a words in my journal person mm-hmm. have been like separated from maybe an innate impulse to also want to draw. And mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear you talk about that. If you were, if you're a forever doodler who kept up with a, and honed like that as a skill. Yeah, I think I'm a forever doodler. I took a detour and went to art school and had to kind of throw away the polish that I learned partly because I was never great at the polish but just thinking that polish makes you a better artist, I think is so gross and untrue. I also think that drawing is kind of, I, I guess I learned this from reading some secret letters written by Saul Steinberg that I obtained in a, a sneaky way that <laughs> um, drawing is kind of the building blocks of writing that we're just kind of inventing our own alphabet. And I like to think of it that way to get pretentious again Kafka used to doodle and he also said that like drawings were his people that he drew were like letters and I love that oh wow yeah sorry you're I'm I'm you're blowing my mind with that yeah I have so many questions like how did you obtain how did you obtain these these I will tell you I interned for the Saul Steinberg Foundation when I was in college and it was a kind of weird under the table internship where I just asked for it and they didn't need interns but they took me on and I was copy editing a lot of letters that were going to make it into a book but didn't and I still have them and I probably shouldn't still have them but um I share them with anyone who asks oh my gosh prepare for emails Mm -hmm. um (laughs) unless you want us to cut this because no um (laughs) unless I get a cease and desist I'm going to continue to do it because they're so good (laughs) I'm curious about whether there are times, you know, the whole words plus images together, which maybe I'm splitting hairs, you know, in terms of the Kafka words as images and vice versa. But if there are times when the words come to you first and then the images follow or vice versa, where you're like, oh, I just need to draw this scene and then figure out the words for it later. Yeah, I really 
do you think of them as kind of the same thing? New Yorker cartoon, there, there's a divide in New Yorker cartoonists between the image first people and the word first people. Oh. And I do not think there is such a big rift between the two for me. But that said, sometimes the words come to me first when it's a cartoon very much out of real life. Like I had one in the book that was taken from something a man said to me on a first date, which was, you can't be 5'5", five five, I'm 5'5". Five five. <laughs> So that was just like quippy and I just had to like make pictures so that it would be a cartoon. Um, P.S. It's so funny that you mentioned that one because I have a very tall body and men are forever asking how tall I am and then uh, disagreeing with me about my own height because they always inflate theirs by several right. inches. They want anyway. you to be short. Wait, they want you to be taller because that means they're taller if they're shorter than you. It's unclear. It's it's not a, it's not exactly clear to me, but I do think that there's some aspect of you can't say the same number I'm saying because I'm standing here and we're clearly not the same height. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they're usually shorter than you when In, they say that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The male ego is like one of the kind of like aquifers that I feel like runs under this, which is so funny. It's like yeah, it's a thing that we all have to deal with. So much of your book is about like being a woman in a public space. Yes. I feel like yes. A woman and a weird person. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think I have like, I need three inches between bodies of strangers, whereas many strangers need half an inch. <laughs> but And that dovetails very nicely with being a woman because women are often given zero, zero negative something inches in public. Oh my gosh, how do you live in New York City if you're a three <laughs> inches person? I'm like, I live in Los Angeles. We're like a three miles place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I have some techniques where I kind of use my hands to describe the space I need around me. Where you like you physically delineate yeah, the space you need? Yeah, I've gotten better. I also have what I call the Queen of England move, where I don't know, I don't know if Queen Elizabeth does this, but I imagine she does, where I like very graciously touch the shoulder of someone who's barreling into me. Wow! <laughs> and if you seem gracious, they can't, they don't have anything on you. And it works. It shuts them down. It actually works. Wow. Almost no one has gotten angry. I think like a couple of people in the past couple of years have gotten angry. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. New York survival tip. I'm using that <laughs> next time for sure. Yeah. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about things that you have read in the not too distant past that you were like, oh my gosh, I can't stop thinking about this. I have to talk about it with everyone or just, I don't know, turn it over and over in my mind. Yes. Um, I read Kyler Roberts' Rat Time. I love all of her work. Hmm. I also love all of Gabrielle Bell's work. I I, they're both autobiographical and they have a similar vibe. So I don't like to mention one and not the other. <laughs> My buddy Juliana Wang's book that you guys talked about on here. So good. It's so freaking good. I, I can't even describe it. I have a thing where I don't like to describe things that I love because I believe that they're magic. Truly, it's mm -hmm. a book of short stories based in many in Chinatown, some in China about immigrants, but they're so perceptive and funny and brilliant and weird and vivid and her like it's like I'm with her but times a hundred and it's the coolest thing I love that Liana thank you so much for being on the show thank you so much for having me ah so good so good so like so what else have you been reading I've been reading a lot lately, Anne. <laughs> Patting myself on the back. Here's what's on the bookshelf. The just read. I just finished reading Jonathan Safran Foer's new book called We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast. If you've read his previous book, Eating Animals, you understand that he's been having this like long-standing conversation about what it means to be someone who cares about the planet and what that means for your food choices, right? And so I didn't read Eating Animals for a long time because I thought that it was going to be rightly one of those books that was like, stop eating meat. I enjoy a steak free every so often enough that that is a message I was not interested in hearing. My beef honey, my beef honey. Uh, <laughs> you know it, you know it. Um, you know, the anemia family. And I so I finally read Eating Animals like years later and it just like, you know, like classic of the of the genre. It's just when you fully understand like the horrors of mass meat production, you like don't need to eat it. You fully do not need to eat it. The thing that I really enjoy about this new book, the We Are the Weather book, is that it doesn't focus on, um, you know, like factory farming and uh, all of the, you know, like the scale of all of that. 
it really is about the environmental impact that a lot of the choices that we make at home have. So something as simple as like eating meat and dairy, he offers a lot of like practical suggestions for reducing consumption of animal products. I don't know. I just felt like it was a more subtle and a more stealth book. And the way also that it it's gotten me to think a lot about, you know, just my own behavior in general. I'm like, I say that I'm someone who cares about the planet. I stand Greta Thunberg hardcore. And yeah, there are a lot of things that I don't do in my own everyday life. And so I I think that like this approach, the approach that um, Jonathan takes in this book is like very measured. It's very moderate. And it's also, I think that for people who think that they're really inflexible, it just lays out like a really good plan for you. Like it's not didactic at all. It's not judgmental. And it really... I don't know, like cuts to that place of, you know, for the crowd who's like, oh, I love a hamburger so much, but also like the world is dying and falling apart. Like, what can I do? I think that like really thinking about that and reframing from being like, oh, I'm such a hypocrite to like actually like what are practical, easy like things that I can do is something that's really important. And also challenging yourself in every way instead of just running away from wanting to know about what the arguments are because you think that you're not willing to do the work. Right. Or because of the like very true like statement that it's like, oh, like government regulation and like what industries do has a far greater impact than like what individuals are able to do, which I don't see as a cop out. Like, right. Like I think everyone should still, especially people who have the financial means to do so, should be making better choices. But instead of just saying like, okay, well, I've seen that this is mostly a thing that businesses are, you know, on the hook for should not let you off the hook. (laughs) Right. I also, you know, like think like um, purely like separate from the argument itself. One of the reasons I also really like this book is that it's such a good study in like how you write an argument. And so thinking about like, what are all the ways that you can change people's minds? Like some of those ways are, you know, like being very rigid or making people feel guilty or making them feel shame. There's so many feelings that you can bring out. And I was like, oh, there is a way to like write a passionate argument in a way that really doesn't bring out like negative feelings for the reader. And so that's also something I've been studying a lot. And I was like, great, I um, can hang with this. I love it. Another, sorry, another book that I am reading right now is called Inconspicuous Consumption, The Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have by Tatiana Schlossberg, who is a former New York Times science reporter. We love a science reporter. And so this book is also very good. (laughs) Can you tell that I'm like very worried about the planet, Anne? (laughs) And rightfully so. You know, like some people watch horror movies, not me. I just read about the planet. And she really looks at how all of our daily habits impacts the environment. Everything from like how you use the internet to what food you're eating, driving and fuel and a topic that is near and dear to my heart to fashion, like the way that you um, shop for clothes and the impact that that's having. And uh, this book is like weirdly very funny. There's a lot of self-deprecating humor. There's a lot of really in-depth research. And so, you know how sometimes like a lot of these like science books, it feels like a, it's a, it's a, it's a hard read, like hard pill to swallow. This one is funny enough and like written simply enough that it goes down like very 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 easy and so you don't feel like you need to know the inside and out of like agriculture or transportation or crypto or whatever to get it my head is really in a like the world is burning place and who are smart people that are writing about this and also what can i do in my own life so that's just like that's the reading zone that i'm in right now it sounds heavy but also good (laughs) Yeah, you know, but it's a kind of like, um, it's heavy, but it doesn't make me feel guilty. I both like need to hear the, you know, like the science and the whatever behind it, but also really challenge my own habits every day. And I think that uh, reading books like helps me do that. There is also pure relaxation reading, but like, let's be real. Like the thing, anything that I'm like recommending to a friend is something I've truly loved has also challenged me in some way, probably. True, true, true. What are you reading? I am reading a pair of memoirs or rather have recently read a couple of memoirs, which writing something like working on our book, which is not like a straightforward exclusively a memoir, but has a lot of those elements has been really interesting in terms of me reading other people's because 
everything I read is now the best book I've ever read, (laughs) which is not to downplay these memoirists or these writers, because like, I think they are actually very good writers, but like, it's like trying to learn to play an instrument. And all of a sudden, like you really appreciate like the virtuosos where I'm like, wow, like we're out here just trying to get this book done. And like these people created art, (laughs) you know, I really, it has heightened my appreciation for other writers works to attempt to write a book which is interesting. But um, so two of the memoirs I have read recently are A Year Without a Name, which is Cyrus Grace Dunham's memoir, and Carmen Maria Machado's In the Dream House, which Carmen was on the podcast, a different books episode, I want to say two years ago, maybe last early last year, talking about her short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties. And this new memoir, In the Dream House, is a story about surviving relationship abuse in a queer relationship but it is also you know a story about kind of how we own our stories and come to own our stories and the way we tell our story in different ways over time like in real time we might tell it to ourselves and our friends one way and leave out certain pieces and then you know in retrospect when we're talking about a thing that's happened in the past we can make it a horror story or we can make it a parable or we can we can really kind of choose to put the emphasis in a lot of different places and she's written this kind of structurally experimental memoir about the ways very complicated stories get told and I think on both a level of feeling like the story itself is just profoundly important and profoundly important to informing a lot of the work that we collectively have to do to make everybody safe and healthy in the relationships they choose, but also important in the sense of really showing how complicated it is to have a lived experience of being in and then coming out of an abusive relationship. And I mean, it was really just so good. Um, There's even a twist, like narratively, it's also like extremely engaging, which I'm making it sound very nerdy and kind of conceptual, but I, I devoured it in, you know, one and a half sittings. I guess that's two sittings, but you know what I mean? I read it really fast. And at one point I was just motivated to throw the book across the room because it was so good. Just like, dang. That is a very visceral reaction that I have when I read something that kind of checks all these boxes of like, it is, you know, I think socially and politically important, like culturally, just like so beautifully executed. Anyway, I screamed. Um, I really recommend it. I believe it is out as of early November. And I also really enjoyed A Year Without a Name, not to give that short shrift, but I think it was also like a very, a very solid memoir about trying to tell a story about identity that is not like, you know, like the hero's journey. Let's tick some boxes about like, you know, drawing neat conclusions or having like a, a rising action and then a conflict and then a resolution. It, it's, you know, both of these stories and I'm... Um, I, I lump them together mostly because I read them recently, not because they are they are both stories about very different queer experiences. But I do think that they speak to the complication of being a human being and um, and trying to make good choices for yourself and do right by yourself. So those I've been in my own little reading group of memoir, <laughs> my reading group of one, um, and then also I recently. Um, have revisited Nora Ephron's Crazy Salad, which I had not read in 20 years. Oh my God, what a, what a uh, like flashback. And I was, I was also, I'll be honest, partly inspired to do that by reading like more modern stories about gender and how we think about gender, because that book is a collection of uh, columns. She wrote a monthly column for Esquire in the early 70s. And um, the book is a collection of those columns. And in the introduction to the original printing, um, I can't remember, I think it might have come out in the late 70s or early 80s. She was like, you know, I still stand by some of these and some of them, like I've moved on from whatever view I was espousing at the time I wrote this. But it is just an interesting time capsule on a lot of different levels in terms of, like I love reading about the women's movement chronicled in real time. You know, like the women's movement as chronicled in real time is so messy, right? <laughs> just like such a hot mess. And and it also is a good check on the narratives for like how how things are remembered or like, you know, we can say we remember like Betty Friedan is problematic, like doy. I would definitely check that box in a multiple choice survey, but like some of the actual details of the behavior she got up to, I was just like, wow, right. Like it's good to be reminded and also good to be reminded of like how far we've come in a nuanced understanding of what it means to describe a gendered experience of the world. And so I'm really enjoying it. I'm not saying I, I'm not saying I, um, I'm reading it uncritically, 
but uh, it is, I don't know, I, I really do, I really, I like including the occasional flashback in, in what I'm reading. We love finding out what you all are also reading. And so if you want to let us know, you, you know the drill, the hashtag on Instagram is CYG Books. I love to peruse and get inspired there. And so I uh, can't wait to find out what y'all are reading. Oh, and I will see you on the internet and in the library and uh, in the independent bookstore. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us callyrgf at gmail.com our theme song is by robin original music composed by carolyn pennypacker riggs our logos are by kanisha sneed we're on instagram and twitter at callyrgf where sophie carter khan does all of our social our associate producer is jordan bailey and this podcast is produced by gina delvac